Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. I want to say a few words about what's apparently a sport by many countries, including the United States, of second-guessing Israel. What do I mean? The, uh, every time Israel has particularly an, uh, is hit by a terror attack, and Israel counterattacks, and uh, there's people, uh, particularly in the United States, but not only the United States, attack Israel for essentially defending itself. Now, we have a new government in Israel, and uh, it's forming this week, and our government will have to push back hard against this hypocritical trend of attacking Israel when Israel defends itself. There's an interesting thing now. There's a word now we now being used by particularly by the American State Department. They use the word accountability. For example, the United States State Department spokesman said last month that the United States would demand accountability from Israel regarding just about every shooting incident in the West Bank and that it is questioning changes in our army's rules of engagement in Judea and Samaria. The army has very tight rules about when you can engage and when you can shoot open fire regulations. The FBI then raised the U.S. chutzpah level by announcing its own investigation into the shooting of a woman named Shirin Abu Akhla. She was a uh, she was killed during a fight between the Israeli army and a Palestinian terrorist back in May. Uh, she was she was a journalist journalist for Al Jazeera but she also held American citizenship. This apparently means that Washington wants some Israeli soldiers to be blamed uh, for, for her killing. She, keep in mind that there was a firefight between Israeli soldiers and terrorists, and she, as a journalist, ran to the scene in order to, to, to report on it, or take pictures or what have you, and she was there when the shooting was going on back and forth, and she was killed. The, our, the prime minister at that time, uh, Yair Lapid, and the defense minister, Benny Gantz, and uh, Naftali Bennett and uh, the IDF chief of staff were forced to respond angrily to this attempt by Washington to decide that it will do its own investigation and not trust the Israeli investigation of what happened. So, Lapid said in, uh, very strongly, he said, no one will dictate our live, live fire instructions when we're fighting for our lives. 
I will not let a fighter in the Israeli army who defended his life under fire from terrorists be prosecuted just so it will receive applause abroad. And ahead of the army, Kochavi said, our test is protecting the citizens of Israel and our mission is to thwart terrorism. We will reach every city, every neighborhood, every alley, every house, and every basement for that purpose. Our activity will continue. We are prepared to intensify it if it's needed. So, the diplomats from 19 European countries instantly have demanded explanations from Israel regarding and the army raid, Israeli army raid on the offices of seven Palestinian non-governmental organizations that Israel has classified as terror groups affiliated with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. These European diplomats impudently declared they do not accept Israel's terror designation and they said they had not received any evidence to validate Israel's claims that these are terrorist organizations. Now, American and European diplomats have taken to judging and criticizing Israel's security and settlement operations in eastern Jerusalem. Uh, There are several places where Jews live in eastern Jerusalem. One is called uh, Shimon Hatzadik, the Arabs call that area Sheikh Ijara. And by the way, it's interesting, you can go by there every day. The, the, um, the train, the, the, the Jerusalem Rail, runs. it has a stop right there. There's also Jews living in East uh, Jerusalem in Ir David, which they, the Arabs call Silwan. And of course, the Temple Mount, which is really a part of Israel's territory. With re, with regards to the Temple Mount, these foreign critics have had a lot to say about Israel police respond to Arab rioters. The it, but they had very little to say about the Palestinian authorities turning the site into an armed camp for open warfare against Israel. Not to mention regular incitement against Jews in his, from Israel and other places. Uh, and the um, Arab, uh, the the leaders of the um, of the Muslim society, speak every Friday from their pulpits against the state of Israel and against Jews. Last week at the UN Security Council's monthly meeting on Israeli-Palestinian matters, a U.S. representative demanded that Israel provide equal allocation of resources. To ca- and he see to it that Israeli extremists uh, should not be allowed onto the Temple Mount. The, the exact words were, the U.S. expects to see equal treatment of extremists, whether Israeli or Palestinians, in arrests, convictions, and punishments, as well as equal allocation of resources to prevent and investigate violent attacks. So, this harks back to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's speech to a group in Washington called J Street. They had a conference last month, and he was speaking about, among other things, about violence in Judea and Samaria. And he used the expression, 
perpetrated by both Palestinians and Israeli settlers. Perpetrators must face equal justice under the law. Now, this sounds fine, sounds nice and reasonable, because everybody, of course, is against violent perpetrators, and who's against equality? Except there's a problem here. Statements like that smack of morally blind, even purposely hostile, even-handedness, the type of neutral and high-handed posturing that willfully ignores the difference between firefighters and arsonists. There are a number, all kinds of Arab terrorists. There are few Jews who indeed, we have to admit, misbehave, and the Israeli government does whatever it can to stop these people. On the other hand, the Palestinian Authority encourages this kind of action against Jews and against Israelis. Israel does not condone violence, and Israel seeks to avoid civil civilian casualties wherever possible, whereas the Palestinian Authority glorifies rather than punishes terrorists and other Palestinian factions that generate terrorism as a matter of ideological purpose. It's a terrible thing, really, to repeatedly hear U.S. State Department and other Western officials call on all sides to exercise restraint. It sounds nice. It sounds reasonable. It even sounds even-handed. Essentially, it's a hostile-to-Israel statement. Basically, it is a warning to Israel that it must not respond to Palestinian assaults. It equates terrorism with counter-terrorist actions. And again, as I said, there are some Jews who misbehave. The Israeli government tries to stop them. The Palestinian Authority encourages attacks against the Jews, and the United States, the European countries, and the UN make no difference between these things. The uh, It's interesting, for example, the Palestinian um, uh, Authority uh, the head of it, Mahmoud Abbas, repeatedly uses the term Al-Aqsa is in danger. Al-Aqsa, of course, is the uh, mosque on the Temple Mount. And he, he says Al-Aqsa is in danger in order to foment violence against the Jews. The, the State Department only speaks out after Palestinian Muslims riot on the Temple Mount Israel's forced to respond. For example, back in last April, the State Department spokesman had, had predictably said, we call on all sides, exercise restraint, avoid provocative actions, rhetoric, and preserve the historic status of the Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount. You have to note that the State Department used the Arabic name for the Temple Mount. It's called the Haram al-Sharif. They never used the original Hebrew term Har Habayit. And it ignores the fact that Palestinians long have killed the so-called status quo on this holy location. Also, Blinken, the Secretary of State, has taken to regularly reminding Jerusalem that the United States expects Israel to abide by democratic principles, including respect 
for the right of LGBT community and equal administration of justice for all citizens of Israel. In other words, the American uh, Secretary of State is telling Israel that we have to make sure that we treat everybody the same here in Israel, which really has a lot of chutzpah to make a statement like that. He doesn't say anything about the lack of rights of the Palestinian LGBT community or the Palestinian authorities' extreme human rights abuses. He doesn't say anything about the abhorrent lack of human rights of Muslim countries, including Qatar, where Blinken went to enjoy the World Cup soccer competition. And last week, the administration foreign aid package that went to Congress includes $75 million for UNRWA, U-N-R-W-A. The administration said nothing about the fact that just last week, another terror attack tunnel was discovered under one of the UNRWA's Gaza Strip schools. The UNRWA, I think it stands for Relief and Works Administration, they have schools in the Gaza Strip, and the terrorists used these schools from which to make tunnels into Israel. The entrance to these tunnels is in these schools. And Israel has stopped giving money to these uh, uh, areas, but the UN, but the United States is going to uh, go ahead, $75 million for Gaza Strip schools, which illustrates yet again that corrupt, that corrupt agency's complicity in allowing Hamas to use children as human shields. All the while, the United States and other Western countries have no problem meeting regularly with Palestinian extremists like Hussein al-Sheikh, who is emerging as the number one, two in the Palestinian Authority. He's right behind Abbas. Now, this al-Sheikh, who probably will take over after Abbas steps down, has this al-Sheikh spent 11 years in Israeli prison for his terrorist activities. The... Um, Incidentally, he has promoted a guy named Mahmoud al-Habash as religious affairs advisor to the president of the Palestinian Authority. And al-Habash, the new religious affairs advisor, equated Jews who visited Temple Mount in Jerusalem to those whom Allah has cursed and made them apes and pigs. This is what's going on in the Palestinian Authority. This week, an organization called IMPACT, which stands for the Institute for Monitoring Peace and Cultural Tolerance in School Education, published another report of the raw anti-Semitism that runs like an open sewer in Palestinian Authority textbooks and in the the radio programs, television programs. The, The State Department says nothing about these things. So... Raw anti-Semitism is the real extremism in the Palestinian Authority that encourages Palestinian youth to kill Israelis. State Department even-handedness is tantamount to blind bias against Israel. That is the real extremism when you don't differentiate between the suicide.
And as long as the American State Department acts that way, the Palestinian authorities in, is encouraged to continue their anti-Israel and anti-Jewish propaganda. The now there's there's they're all all upset because a new government is going to take over in Israel. The new, the new government has not yet sat down to its first meeting. And yet the State Department and other people in the West are referring to it as ultra-nationalist, extremist, racist, and supremist. And uh, it has not taken office yet in Israel, but it's already being branded as something that's untouchable because it is extremist. So I I think several things. First of all, the American... State Department has not been even-handed in its attitude toward Israel, and uh, that's something we we continually point out. Doesn't make any difference. People ignore what Israel says, <coughs> and everybody is busy attacking the new government, uh, even though it has not yet sat down to have a first governmental meeting. So. Uh, it's very interesting how everybody has already decided that the new government is going to be ultra-extremist and racist, all kind of things. And yet, as I said, it hasn't yet sat down for its first meeting. And by the way, I would I would uh, say in general, and uh, the experience seems to be that except in very, very rare cases, people who are ext- extremists, when they're running for office, tend to moderate once they have taken office. Extremism is often used to get votes. But once you sit down in a government, and in particular, if you're in a government made of many uh, different political parties, you have to compromise. By definition, you have to compromise. And therefore, a lot of things that are said during a political, political campaign simply do not come into being once a government is formed. That's the nature of things. That's the nature of politics. There are very, very few exceptions, and the exceptions, of course, are really bad. For example, one of the exceptions is Nazi Germany. The Nazis said terrible things before the election. They did terrible things before they took power, And after they took power, they indeed continue to do terrible things and not to compromise in any way. As a matter of fact, they actually got rid of the political opposition once they were in power. In general, in a democracy, and Israel is a democracy, a lot of things that are said during the election campaign simply do not come about. Even good things, people promise all kind of things. But once they get into power, they have to make compromises. That is nature. That is the nature of democracy. And once you make compromises, a lot of things you said in your campaign simply never come on the table to be discussed by the government. That is the nature of a democracy. In dictatorships, they say things and then they do those things. We do not do that. Israel is a democracy. We are the only democracy in the Middle East, a real democracy. And now, for the first time in many years, 
we have had a change in government. It is no longer middle of the road or left-wing government. It is now primarily a, a government which is to the right of center. It's not extreme right. It's to the right of center. And so we will have to wait to see what this government does before we go out of our minds saying terrible things. People are saying they're going to leave the country because of the new government. Uh, that, that is simply stupid. It makes no sense. Let's see what the government does before we judge it. Several months ago, the head of the Shimbet, the Israeli Secret Service, if you will, a man named Ronan Barr, spoke at Reichman University Instant International Institute for Counterterrorism uh, back in September, and uh, I got a copy of his speech. I want to share what he said and my thoughts with the listeners. Terror is on the rise in Judea and Samaria, and it can, simply cannot be analyzed in narrow terms as part of the ebb and flow of a local conflict. The Israeli General Security Services, the Shin Bed, spoke about this, and uh, he spoke on the domestic social political climate, uh, but the, he, he, den he denounced the Iranian regime as not only the fundamental problem in the entire Middle East, but as playing no small part in the recent instability in Judea and Samaria. And this is critically important to clarify the strategic threats facing Israel. Iran, of course, has for decades given support and direction to terror groups in Gaza, Judea, and Samaria, not the least to Yasser Arafat himself, even before he was in Ramallah. Now, however, and especially after what was called Operation Guardian of the Walls and the scenes of widespread violence and mayhem amongst Israel's own Arab citizenry, Iran has an appetite for integrating not only jihadist groups in Gaza, but forces hostile to Israel everywhere, even west of the Jordan River, uh, and Israeli Arabs. In other words, Iran is supporting terror group, terrorist groups within Israel proper. The, in a number of potential scenarios, most of all in an open war between Iran and Israel, the regime in Tehran would want an armed insurrection and some kind of intifada waged throughout Israel, or in Israel itself together with a war front on Israel's northern borders from the Mediterranean Sea to the southern tip of the Golan Heights, as well as an air, sea, and land-based attacks from beyond Israel's immediate borders, Iranian military planners envision overwhelming Israel's defenses, inflicting maximum damage on the civilian population and the army, in their ideal scenario, the conquest and occupation of parts of Israel territory. 
This is what the head of the General Security Service said. As in Israel's 1948 war of independence, total war against Israel from everywhere within and without, that's what they want. If allowed to arm itself with nuclear weapons, Iran's strategy and plans would then be escalated to the goal of the complete and utter destruction of Israel. It's that serious. The significant increase in attempts to smuggle light arms from Lebanon and Jordan into Israel, which uh, Israeli authorities have attributed to Hezbollah and Iran, all this exposes the multifaceted efforts undertaken by Iran to build up a domestic war front within Israel's borders. This doesn't get big headlines in Israel, and it should. The, uh, what they're trying to do is awaken the Arabs living in Israel itself against the state. So if the current, the current so-called nuclear deal with Iran is actually signed, one could only imagine the terror and chaos that would develop and unleash by Iran infused with tens of billions of dollars. As I understand it now, the, uh, the uh, meetings that are taking place uh, in uh, Europe uh, with Iran and the Western countries uh, is failing. They're not going to come to any kind of agreement. The, now, let's look at the at Judea and Samaria. The, the head of the Palestinian authority is Mahmoud Abbas, but he has a lack of legitimacy he has no control in the areas ostensibly under his authority. The, there is a fractured nature of the very faction Abbas is the leader of, called Fatah. These realities only compound the complete dysfunction of Abbas and his cronies. They have autocratic rule from Mamala, as well as the basic failure of the entire entity known as the Palestinian Authority. Way back in the early 1990s, Israel made an agreement, big mistake. They brought Yasser Arafat and his terrorists back into our country, and now they themselves, these terrorists, can't control the other terrorists within their own area. Dysfunctionality and failure echo each other, there are artificial regimes that have been thrown into chaos. And this is not true not only under the Palestinian Authority. It happened in Libya, in Iraq, in Yemen, and others. Pa power is taken by a group that is essentially not a legitimate government. It's a terrorist group. Despotic rule and system, systemic corruption innate societal factualism and clanism have boiled over in areas controlled by Abbas in recent years, as in many, as in many parts of the Arab world. The lack of even basic governance and the absence of any interest in reforms have created a situation where Mahmoud Abbas security forces are more and more ineffective. As a result, Israel's security forces military had to end, 
intensify their operation in places like Jenin to root out terrorist cells in operation. In other words, the area under the Palestinian Authority is incapable of preventing the rise of terrorist groups. Even, uh, even if they don't encourage them, uh, they have no control over them. Now, the, uh, so now what is the Israeli army doing? Uh, they, this, this rise in operational activity now includes approval for use of armed drones in Judea and Samaria. Samaria. Intra-Arab violence, gangs and clans and factional fighting is going on in Judea and Samaria. It's been festering for months. For example, in the case of Hebron, Abbas's forces have almost no control over running firefights and pitched street battles. This also affects the general security situation throughout the area. So on one hand, the Israeli army has to defend Israeli citizens and Jews. At the same time, the Arabs themselves within the areas they control are busy killing each other. So the circumstances and situational realities on the ground in Judea and Samaria make it clearer and clearer that no matter how much the United States and Europe or Israel, for that matter, would prop up Abbas, his successor or his successor's successor, eventually this house of cords called the Palestinian Authority will fall. It's also been understood for some time that a free and open elections were held in Arab-controlled areas of Judea and Samaria the terror group Hamas would come out victorious, exactly as happened in Gaza the one time such elections were held and never again since. They held an election in the Gaza area, uh, I think it was in 2005. I wonder if it was that just about then. Hamas won the election. The election was obviously not an honest one, and the first thing they did was take the, their opponents and throw them off the roofs. And that's what happened in Gaza. The same thing would happen in what's called the West Bank. The, uh, the result of such a scenario would be yet again an Islamic terror entity dominated by Iran. And such, beyond the priority of maintaining and, when necessary, expanding intensive Israeli military and security forces in Judea and Samaria, the increasing encroachment into ter ter uh, of Area C, which according to the agreement back in the 1990s would be Israeli, there is encroachment, illegal Arab construction of all sorts, attempts at pirate agriculture, vandalism, siphoning off natural resources, looting antiquities, and destruction of antiquities, and general violence under the service of attempts to gain a foothold on the territory, so-called Area C, which, according to the Oslo Agreements, was for Jewish settlements. If the listeners will recall, they made an agreement back in the early 1990s 
divided Judea and Samaria into areas A, B, and C, and the area C was entirely for Jewish settlement as being encroached upon by the Arabs. Now, this in turn is followed by false claims made about those areas, and with the support of the authorities in Ramallah, they are taken to the international community, especially to Western Europe, for support and material help. This organized encroachment upon Israeli territory provides a potential future geographic area for Islamic terrorist groups, and by extension, Iran will be there, and Iran will set up shop in the areas that the Palestinian Authority is supposed to control. This is not just a tactical threat, but is a strategic threat to the state of Israel. Take a look at the map. See where the, where the, where the so-called West Bank is. You, you can stand on a hilltop in the West Bank, and you can see Tel Aviv. It's not that far away. So we have allowed mistakes by our own government 25 years ago that allowed a terrorist group to take over, and the terrorist group that was taken over has itself taken over by other terrorist groups. Today, perhaps more than ever, Western European countries need Israel. Natural gas, weaponry, intelligence cooperation, and technology from Israel are top priorities for almost all of the Western countries. When, for example, Israel gets American aid from, let's say, airplanes, Israel makes improvements to those airplanes and gives the improvements back to the American suppliers. So it's, Israel is not simply a taker. Israel takes, defends Western interests here in the Middle East, improves the weaponry provided by the Americans, and gives those improvements back to the Americans. It's sort of a win-win situation for the United States. As I said, there's also natural gas. Uh, they're digging now in uh, in the Mediterranean, and the uh, the it's, it, Israel is America's strongest ally. Who's not only an ally, but Israel is an ally that provides assistance back to the United States and improves the weaponry that it gets from the United States. So this is now a perfect opportunity to force a change in the positions and policies pertaining to their support for the Palestinian Authority, if not the broader policies vis-a-vis Judea and Samaria. As for Israel's position, what Iran can expect if it continues to try to attack Israelis, or even attack Jews outside of Israel, the head of the Mossad, a gentleman named David Barnea, made it abundantly clear in a lecture that he gave that direct, there would be direct action against Iran on Iranian soil. The, that will certainly be the case as well, 
if Iran continues to try to attain nuclear weapons capability. Now, we have a new government uh, coming into position here in Israel. There are a lot of domestic problems that have to resolve. The biggest foreign problem is a nuclear-armed Iran. Israel cannot allow this to happen. Our prime minister, our incoming prime minister, Netanyahu, has spoken to the American Congress about this years ago, even under the, uh, even before Biden and even before, uh, even before the previous American president, when Obama was still president, uh, Netanyahu was invited to Congress to speak about the Iranian threat. If anything, the Iranian threat has grown since that time. Israel cannot, under any circumstances, allow Iran to become a nuclear power. And in the final analysis, Israel can only depend on itself to see to it that Iran does not get nuclear capability. Truth of the matter is, to be uh, in the Israeli government, they particularly to be the head of the government, is really a really heavy task because the future existence of the country depends on how we act vis-a-vis these foreign threats. And uh, this is a very tough situation. And here in Israel, there's a tendency to talk about small-time politics about very various offices, who's going to be the minister of this and who's going to be the minister of that. Under all of this, there's this, or I should say over all this, there's a threat to our very existence from a power called Iran that has its fingers into everything. And uh, they have publicly stated over and over again that they want to destroy the state of Israel. Obviously, something we cannot allow. And since nobody else is going to pick up the challenge, it's going to depend on uh, Israel itself. I want to change the subject of the program. Uh, I, uh, I spoke about the Iranian threat, and that's something very serious. I want to speak a a totally different subject. Uh, Several weeks ago, the Jewish community gathered in Basel, Switzerland to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the First Zionist Congress. It was convened convened by Theodore Herzl. uh, In other words, they say Zionism is 125 years old, and some went so far as to say that Zionism was born in Switzerland. Not only is this rhetoric ahistorical, it's dangerous. The Zionism, the Jewish yearning to return to our ancestral homeland, is thousands of years old, not 125 years old. Zionism started as far back as the year 587 before the Common Era, when the Babylonian exile started. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Psalms, Psalm 137 is a nine-paragraph poem expressing the Jewish yearning to return to Zion or Jerusalem. The lines where they said, By the rivers of Babylon 
There we sat and we wept and we remembered Zion. And if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. It wasn't written 125 years ago. It was written thousands of years ago. These lines showcase how integral Zionism is to Jewish identity. Claiming that Zionism is 125 years countless art, poems, and efforts to return to the land of Israel before the first Zionist Congress. It's true that political Zionism was born in 1897. However, it was throwing the efforts of Zionist leaders before the first Congress and the importance of land of Israel to the Jewish community everywhere that allowed Herzl and his delegates to convene in Basel. The Zionism, the Jewish yearning to return to our ancestral homeland of Israel has existed since Jews were exiled from the land of Israel almost 2,600 years ago. So Zionism, political Zion is new, Zionism is not. Uh, I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then the Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries, and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. We're back with Jay Shapiro. In this segment of the program, I want to talk about two subjects, one of which is very far under the headlines, but I think it's important. And the other one has to do with Israel's foreign affairs, a subject upon which I'm not an expert, but I'd like to say a few words for the listeners to think about. The first subject, one way under the headlines, has to do with the fact that 70,000 new immigrants, Olim, came to Israel in 2022, and they came from 95 different countries. All of this was with the assistance of the Jewish Agency and the Aliyah Integration Ministry of the Government, They published a report last Thursday, and they noted it was the largest number of Olim, of new immigrants, to arrive in 23 years, and a dramatic increase over the previous year when only 28,600 new immigrants were welcome, and this year we have 70,000. Now, Where did they come from, and why such an increase? Well, most of the immigrants came from Russia and Ukraine, according to the report that also showed that the rate of Aliyah from most countries has returned to the pre-pandemic level. The Jewish agency made an operation to rescue Jews from Ukraine following Russia's invasion back in February, and that is something that was unprecedented. 
working together with Israel's government and global Jewish communities led by the Jewish Federation of North America and Karen Hayesod, they launched operations on the ground in countries bordering Ukraine within 24 hours of the invasion back in February. The agency opened centers to receive the wave of Jewish refugees. They provided them with warm beds, meals, medical care, and even activities for kids. It reported that 290,000 meals were distributed in these centers and that thousands of refugees, thousands of refugees, including hundreds of elderly Holocaust survivors, were brought to Israel on these rescue flights. Emergency grants were transferred to strengthen communities within Ukraine, and 354 tons of personal equipment were collected in Israel and distributed on the countries bordering Ukraine. The Aliyah in Ukraine was carried out in cooperation with many partners, including the Israeli Foreign Ministry, Nativ, the Interior Ministry, uh, Ofik Israeli, and several others. And the, the, the data for the period from January 1st to December 1st this year shows that almost 38,000 Olim arrived from Russia and close to 15,000 came from Ukraine. And also, interestingly enough, and I don't want to burden the listeners with numbers, but close to 30%, that's about 19,000 people, of this year's Olim are young people aged 18 to 35, including professionals in fields where there's a labor shortage in Israel, like medicine, like engineering, and like education. Also, it was also, uh, they opened a first-of-its-kind center for lone soldiers, that is, soldiers who, without family members living in Israel, they opened a center in Tel Aviv, a joint initiative of the Jewish Agency and something called the Mirage Foundation, uh, Karen Hayesod and Israel Spirit, the program provided a, sport, a supportive framework for 2,200 lone soldiers this year, from those preparing for military service to those who have been discharged and are establishing their lives as civilians. So this is really interesting news, I think. It shows what Israel is doing in terms of bringing new people in. And as something, it doesn't get the headlines even here in Israel, but it should. 70,000 new Olim is really a really an interesting number. And by the way, there's a lot of problems that I don't want to get into because it's a little bit complicated that a lot of these Olim are, are the grandchildren of Jews, some are not Jewish entirely, according to Halakha. That's a whole problem unto itself that I don't want to get into. But the fact remains that Israel <coughs> sees that it uh, has a responsibility of saving Jews who are in difficult situations around the world. 
That's one of the purposes of the Jewish state. And therefore, during this year when there's this war between Russia and Ukraine, the, the, the state of Israel, what it did what it's supposed to do, help bring Jews out of danger and bring them to the Jewish homeland. It's interesting, by the way, that, it, that the, the fact that 70,000 Olim moved to Israel in 2022 doesn't get any headlines at all in the Israeli newspapers. I looked in the Israeli papers, uh, English, Hebrew, and other languages, and I was really surprised at the fact that this big number came this year to something that's not considered important enough to get on the first two pages of the newspapers. So that, 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 that's just a side comment. The bottom line is 70,000 new only moved to Israel in 2022. Now, I want to change the subject slightly, talk a little about foreign affairs and dis- diplomacy, something which is I am not, I'm far from an expert in, but I think as, as what's happening should be mentioned, even if these are things that don't get big headlines. The, the Biden administration has pretty ill-advised policy in the Middle East, and they're undermining America's success because what America has done, as I understand it, they've shunned trusted allies like Israel and like Saudi Arabia. And they are appeasing Iran, a regime driven by its dangerous aim to develop nuclear weapons and terrorize its neighbors, primarily Israel. While many in the region view an uncertain future, it's worth reviewing America's positive engagement in the Middle East and why the United States must lead again through principled leadership. Because throughout the past century, American leadership has had a profound impact in Israel and the entire Middle East, notably the United States, under President Truman, the first nation to recognize Israel's independence nearly 75 years ago. And they partnered, the U.S. partnered with Israel, protected sovereignty by means of military aid and supporting peace initiatives with its neighbors here in this region. Since Israel's independence in 1948, The U.S. has provided Israel with billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer funds. This includes military and economic aid, money for refugee resettlement, aid for American schools and hospitals abroad, as well as loan guarantees. And by the way, this is a two-way street. Israel has received uh, uh, airplanes, for example, from the United States, improved the airplanes and given the improvements back to the Americans. So it's not exactly a one-way street in terms of the military area. American leadership was instrumental in supporting the Camp David Accords, which were signed by um, Egypt and Israel, and it was a game-changer for the region. The the Camp David Accords between Israel and Egypt 
were a precursor to the Abraham Accords, which is an American-led endeavor that normalized Israel's relations with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan. This was all done with the help of the American government. The promise of U.S. leadership to expand this successful initiation has in the meantime, under Biden, has lost momentum. There's a troubling trend that the administration in Washington is essentially derailing a historic achievement in this region. The initiative that brought courageous nations of the Abrahamic religions together to augment peace and prosperity has more or less stalled under the Biden administration. The Biden administration's initial approach was to undermine the initiative, and even they didn't like to use the word Abraham Accords, and uh, they, they didn't they didn't even use the word normalization agreements. In its quest to sign a deal with Iran, the U.S. is seeking what appears to be a new equation in which its allies are downgraded in the name of balance. All of this is under the Biden administration. The major steps forward were taken during the Trump administration, and these things have slowed down under the Biden administration. The, uh, as a matter of fact, as I understand it, relations with Saudi Arabia, which was once a really strong U.S. ally and obviously a significant power in this area, the relations with the United States worsened why? because Democratic leaders in Congress issued an ultimatum to Saudi Arabia to reverse a decision made by OPEC to limit oil production or endure what's called a potential one-year freeze on its oil arms sales. Saudi Arabia's response to the Biden administration was something the Americans should have been aware of. Their response, the Saudi response, was to welcome China the second largest energy consumer in the world, the, uh, it welcomed them to Saudi Arabia. Now, not and China is also America's emerging adversary on the global stage. Soon after President Joe Biden visited Saudi Arabia, the, Saudi, the Saudis co-hosted the first China Gulf Cooperation Council summit with Arab states. And thanks to the Biden administration, the Abraham Accords, the most promising peace initiative in the Middle East, remains an unreported story in America's major media broadcast channels and broadsheets. Today, American entrepreneurs, business entities, and engaged citizens have not been fully informed about the tangible successes of this peace and prosperity dividend for the region. Many have not heard that a potential trade agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates 
would exceed $10 billion over the next five years. So the question is, will America's leadership take note of the realities on the ground here in the Middle East and affirm policies that yield positive results? Or will the United States remain a laggard and, uh, and not be active in the Middle East? The, uh, I guess the solution would be, and again, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a politician, not a diplomat, but you think about it, you look at the situation and you say to yourself, maybe one of the ways to bring back American interest in this region of the world is to, to uh, go particularly to the House of Representatives and the Senate and uh, even U.S. state governors in order to help them to revitalize talks with Saudi Arabia and engage a major U.S. ally to join the Abraham Accords. In other words, <coughs> the Americans could influence the Saudis to join the Abraham Accords, and that would be good news for the entire Middle East. By the way, uh, since since the signing of these agreements between these other countries and Israel, the uh, Saudis had, uh, have done something which they refused to do until now, and that is allow Israeli planes to fly over Saudi airspace on their way to the Far East even, which cuts hours off the travel time. The it, 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 what's needed now, the, 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 the Republican Party in particular have to assert leadership. The, uh, the, the, the legislative branch has responsibility in the area of commerce with foreign nations. Take a look at the U.S. Constitution and you see that when it comes to dealing with foreign nations, it's the legislative branch, which that is commerce with the uh, foreign nations, the leadership could is given to the legislative branch of the American government. The, con the Constitution, the American Constitution gives Congress the power, and I quote, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states. So there's a unique opportunity for the, the House of Representatives to articulate a bold vision for an American-backed uh, fair and reciprocal trade agreements with countries signing up to the Abraham Accords. Right now, the world is facing an economic downturn through an impending uh, recession. The only predictions are there's going to be a recession. Therefore, an American-led free trade agreement with the countries here in the Middle East would propel economic opportunities and really unleash capital and investments benefiting individual citizens and investors. The, because among other things, I think it's pretty well known that 
Saudi Arabia is trying to take steps to move away from its dependence on oil. And it could become the leading country to, to in the Middle East, including the other Muslim countries and Israel, based on the Abraham Accords. It could join the efforts, the, um, the original signatories to these agreements said, and I quote, it says in the agreements that they join efforts to pursue a vision of peace, security, and prosperity in the Middle East and around the world. Now, it's true that elected officials in America and congressmen and governors have led successful foreign trade missions to Israel. I'm aware of that. But leaders representing Israel and American private enterprises should rally behind the Middle East's most successful peace and trade initiatives. Israel's small and medium-sized enterprises will benefit greatly from the expansion of the Abraham Accords. So supporting the policy of expanding the Abraham Accords by engaging countries like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Qatar and other Arab nations would usher in, hopefully, a new area of peace, prosperity, and stability for the region and beyond. It's interesting. I quote President Ronald Reagan, uh, he said, free trade serves the course of cause of economic progress and it serves the cause of world peace. And since Israel has these agreements so far that were unexpected 10 years ago, getting to help America, getting Saudi Arabia to join would really, I think, help create a whole new Middle East. Again, I'm not an expert, but just look at what's happened over the five years, and and we can say that if we expand this relationship between Israel and its neighbors with American support, it could bring a lot of prosperity to this area and to the world. Again, I'm not an expert, but it seems reasonable to just a layman like myself that expanding what has always been started between Israel and these countries around us would be a good thing for Israel, for this area, and for the world. Uh, I assume that most of my regular listeners are aware that I try to present things that are under the headlines. Uh, Because this program only airs once a week, I would rather let the listeners have a chance to see things that are happening that appear on the back pages of the Israeli newspapers and not in the big headlines. There are many news outlets that discuss the big headlines. What I try to do is give a picture of what's happening under the headlines. And again, because the program is only aired once a week, I can't go into any great depth. And I assume that the listeners will find other sources to get details about what's happening here in Israel. So I look upon my responsibility to bring up the kind of things that you won't get in the headlines 
of other newspapers or other uh, radio programs. However, once in a while, I feel a need to say something on a broader issue because I think the broader issues are sometimes very important and they will, in the end, affect even the little things. Now, one of those is the the attitude of the American government toward what's happening in the Middle East. So far, the Biden administration is halfway through its four years, and it has very ill-advised policies in the Middle East. And the truth of the matter is because the Biden administration's policies are really not good, they're undermining the, the recent success that America has had in the Middle East. The trusted allies of the United States are two countries that are quite different from each other. One is Saudi Arabia and the other Israel. What the Americans have apparently tried to do over the last several years is to appease Iran, which is a regime driven by a dangerous aim to develop nuclear weapons and terrorize its neighbors, especially Israel. Now, that, that makes for a very uncertain future here in the Middle East, and it's worth reviewing America's positive engagement in the Middle East and why the United States must lead again through principled leadership. Throughout the past century, American leadership has had a profound impact on Israel and the entire Middle East. For example, and notably, the United States was the first nation to recognize the Jewish state's independence officially nearly 75 years ago. President Truman did that. And it, the United States partnered partner with Israel to protect its sovereignty through military aid and supporting peace initiatives with its neighbors in the region. So the United States has worked closely with Israel to try to support peace here in the Middle East. Since Israel's independence back in 1948, the United States has provided Israel with billions of dollars, essentially of U.S. taxpayer funds. This includes military and economic aid, money for refugee resettlement, aid for American schools and hospitals abroad, as well as loan guarantees. And by the way, this has not been a one-way street. Israel ha has received military aid from the United States and improved those weapons, American weapons, Israeli improvements, that are given back to the United States. I myself worked for Israel Aircraft Corporation for many years. We had a lot of American equipment that we improved, and we reported those improvements back to the American manufacturers, and the Israeli improvements were incorporated into American equipment for use by American forces. American leadership was also instrumental 
in supporting the Camp David Accords signed by Egypt's President Anwar Sadat and the Israel Prime Minister at Menachem Begin, which was a game changer for this whole region. The Camp David Accords were a precursor to what's now the Abraham Accords. It was an American-led endeavor that normalized Israel's relations with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, something to, to the average person could not have been predicted 10 years ago, even five years ago, agreements between these Arab countries and Israel. Now, apparently, this US, under Biden, this U.S. leadership has sort of lost momentum. There's a troubling trend that the administration, is, and the, the Biden administration, is essentially de, derailing a historic achievement in the, in the region. The initiative that brought courageous nations of the Abraham religions together, the Abraham Accords, to augment peace and prosperity, has more or less stalled under the Biden administration. The Biden administration's initial approach was to undermine the initiative and even shun the term, the word Abraham Accords. They called them normalization agreements. In its quest to sign a deal with Iran, the United States is seeking what appears to be a new equation in which his allies are downgraded in the name of balance. Also, it appears to me, as an observer, that the Biden administration is trying to play with anything that was done by the previous administration, by the Trump administration, even if it was something good for the United States and good for the Middle East. So the Biden administration, I believe, has a misguided approach, and its failure to advance and expand the Abraham Accords reveal a troubling sign for leaders in this region who really want peace and they really want economic certainty. They want to attract investments and jobs and innovation, something that Israel indeed can provide to its neighbors. Now, Saudi Arabia was once a real staunch American ally, and Saudi Arabia is a significant power in the region. However, relations with Saudi Arabia worsened as Democratic leaders in the American Congress issued an ultimatum to, to Saudi Arabia to reverse a decision made by OPEC to limit oil production or endure a potential one-year one year freeze on all arms sales. So in response to this, this action by the Biden administration, the Saudi Arabia's response was to welcome China, the second largest energy consumer in the world, which is also America's emerging adversary on the global stage. Soon after President Joe Biden visited Saudi Arabia, the Saudis co-hosted the first China Gulf Cooperation Council summit meeting with Arab states right after Biden's visit. And keep in mind, 
the Abraham Accords between Israel and other and Arab states was the most promising peace initiative in the Middle East ever. It remains an underreported success story in America's major media broadcast channels and newspapers. Today, American entrepreneurs and business entities and citizens have not been fully informed about the tangible successes of this peace and prosperity. It's a dividend for the region. Many have not heard that a potential trade agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates would exceed $10 billion over the next five years. So these are the realities on the ground, but the American leadership is sort of ignoring them. They should affirm the policies that yield positive results. The question is, will the, the, uh, will the Americans, instead of picking up with what's the success of what's happening between Israel and these other countries, will, will the Americans drop the ball? The, uh, the uh, solution to address this shift in American leadership toward Israel and the region's Gulf states a solution would be to the the new uh, House of Representatives is is uh, going to be uh, sworn in next week. It's now a Republican House of Representatives. They have a majority. The Senate remains pretty well balanced, and but there are U.S. governors, many of whom have visited Israel. They should all get together and revitalize talks with Saudi Arabia. And, and engage Saudi Arabia, which is a major U.S. ally, to try to convince Saudi Arabia to join the Abraham, Abraham Accords. So now we are waiting to see what will happen, what the Republican Party in the United States will do. As I said, the, the Senate is divided. The House is now in the hands of Republicans. America is our strongest and greatest ally. And what happens in the American Congress is going to affect Israel. So the, uh, it's interesting. The, the founding document of the United States provides clear guidance to exert the legislative branch responsibility in the area of commerce with foreign nations. When it comes to commerce with foreign nations, the U.S. Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states. That's the wording of the Constitution. So there's a unique opportunity for the House of Representatives and members of Congress to articulate a bold vision for a U.S.-backed free, fair, and reciprocal trade agreement with countries signing up to the Abraham Accords. Right now, the world is facing an economic downturn. There's a, pretty much the beginning of a recession in the West. Uh, so a bold American-led Abraham Accords free trade agreement would propel economic opportunities and unleash capital and investments benefiting individual citizens and investors. 
In other words, peace between Israel and its Muslim neighbors, including Saudi Arabia, is good for the United States. So the, the Saudi Arabians, by the way, are now taking steps to move away from oil dependency. And it could become the leading country to affirm a pro-growth policy for the Middle East. If the Saudi Arabians would join the Abraham Accords, it could join the efforts to pursue a vision of peace, security, and prosperity in the Middle East and around the world. And these, this was agreed upon by the, uh, these words that I just said were agreed upon the original signatories of the, the agreements between Israel and its neighbors. Now, in the past, American elected officials in Congress and a large number of governors have led successful foreign trade missions that have had tangible results. The leaders representing Israel and American private enterprise joined by Israel's incoming government should rally behind the Middle East's most successful peace and trade initiatives. The, the Israel has a lot of uh, small and medium-sized enterprises that would benefit greatly from the expansion of the Abraham Accords. So, supporting the policy of expanding the Abraham Accords by including nations like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, and other Arab nations would, would, I believe, usher in a new era of peace and prosperity and stability for the entire region. Interestingly, President Ronald Reagan provided a guiding principle when talking about commerce among people and nations, how its noble aims deter conflict. He said, and I quote, free trade serves the cause of economic progress and it serves the cause of world peace. So pretty much summing up what I said, Israel has made agreements with some of its neighbors, Muslim countries, and has yet to make an agreement with Saudi Arabia, but if Saudi Arabia would become one of those nations that has an agreement with Israel, this entire area, the entire Middle East, would be a source of progress and prosperity for the whole world. So it's it's a worthy challenge. And a new government is about to take office in Israel, and it wants, I'm sure, to forge new alliances in the Middle East, and what at the same time, a country like Saudi Arabia is trying to expand its economy and getting away from an economy that's based entirely on oil. The uh, the, it, the the efforts to jumpstart the principled Abraham Accords would create jobs, it would fuel economic growth and advance peace and stability in the Middle East. So to sum up what I've said, 10 years ago, I think no one could have imagined 
that Israel would have uh, peace agreements with its uh, Muslim neighbors. Not all of them yet, including uh, Saudi Arabia, have not yet joined. But the chances are, and again, I'm not an expert in economics, I just know what I know from reading the newspapers. When you have countries in the Middle East at peace with each other, and then the the economic uh, uh, future would really be great, and it would be helpful for the entire world. So, I think what what America should do this uh, it's the old administration, it's still the Biden administration, but we now have a House of Representatives which is under the control of the Republicans. The the Americans should take a lead in seeing to it that the Middle East become a source of prosperity for the entire world. The very fact that the Biden administration has pretty much ignored this area, and I I don't know whether it's because they're angry at Trump or for whatever reason, but under the Trump administration, there was a tremendous move forward in peace and prosperity between Israel and some of its Arab neighbors, and that must be expanded because it would be good not only for this region, but for the entire world. Again, I apologetically say I'm not an expert on economics, but even just looking at the headlines in the newspapers and seeing all the good that has come from the agreements between Israel and some of its Muslim neighbors, this should be expanded. It'll be good for the for the area, and it'll be good for the entire world. Right now, we have the threat of a nuclear-armed Iran. That, that, at the moment, is the threat to the Middle East, because you have to remember also that the Iranian form of Islam is not the same as the most of the other Islamic countries. And by the way, it's interesting, a lot of people don't, uh, don't realize, if you ask people what's the largest Muslim country, they give you all kind of answers, but the real answer is, is Indonesia. It's the biggest Muslim country, but they're not involved in any of the struggles taking place here in the Middle East. So the fact that peace has become about between Israel and some of its Muslim neighbors is a good beginning. And it's up to countries like the United States to use their influence to expand on what's happened so far. Again, I'm not an expert. Even as a layman, I think a lot more good can come out of peace for the world from peace between Israel and its Muslim neighbors. Thanks again for listening. Jay Shapiro signing off. can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. 
The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Torres from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. opinion and more you're listening to israel news talk radio 